You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Hey, it's good to be with you guys. Uh, We're going to dive into the book of Acts where we've been now for the last few weeks and where we'll be for the foreseeable future. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 this morning in verses uh, 14 through 37. And if you uh, do not have your own Bible, there's a black hardcover Bible either under your own seat or in the seat in front of you. You can grab that and you can uh, turn to the text. I believe it's on page 856 or so. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, take that one. It is our gift to you. Thank you to some of our members who stepped up and purchased those for you. Um, We uh, really value God's Word here and want to make sure everybody has opportunity to have a copy of God's Word in their hands. Uh, If you're new with us or joining us online for the first time, my name is Joe, one of the pastors here, and I'm stoked to dive into Acts chapter 2 with you. I will confess, um, I came down with some kind of weird food poisoning on Friday, so my sermon prep is usually on Friday, if you don't know that, and and so uh, it it was a, uh, I was up all night Thursday, so Friday wound up being a really wild, weird day. We'll not go into the details because it's gross. Um, but I will say it was about 7 o'clock or so uh, Friday night when I, when I finished the sermon. And I, I told Christy, I said, you know, if I was just a truck driver, uh, I would probably call in sick to work and say, I'm sorry, the, uh, the load is going to be a day late. But as a preacher, you don't get to do that. And so, um, and so my confession is, is what I have studied and what I have written down this morning is simply um, just an explanation of the text, which I think really should be enough anyway, shouldn't it? And uh, we'll trust the Holy Spirit to do His work. And so, um, um, yeah. So, um, Acts chapter 2. Uh, significant chunk of text, verses 14 through 37. I want to read it. Uh, You can follow along with me on the screen. You don't have to read out loud with me because it's too much text and it would be weird. But if you would follow along, um, beginning in verse 14, here's what God's Word says to us. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life, and will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received From the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Amen. Uh, Let me pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Ask a blessing over your word this morning. Father, we ask that you would come and uh, speak um, through the preaching of your word. Help us to hear you. Help our hearts to be um, not just open to hear from you, but help our hearts to be uh, thirsty. And, and hungry to hear from you. Lord, pray that you would come and speak to us. Rebuke us, challenge us, encourage us, strengthen. Or do all of the things that only you and you can do as your word is preached and spoken. Or lead us to uh, the foot of the cross uh, in view of that empty tomb. Uh, remind us also of the, the promise of the hope that we have and the return of our King and Savior, Jesus. God, we love you so much. And everybody said, Amen. So this, uh, this portion of text uh, is, is uh, often retur- re- referred to by, by scholars as uh, Peter's Pentecostal sermon. Um, it is uh, definitely a core text in the uh, transition of the disciples as they continue to follow Jesus, who is no longer bodily with them and has ascended into heaven. Um, It's definitely a transition on the day of Pentecost as the Holy Spirit comes. And here Peter uh, preaches again, um, as I would call it, a a Pentecostal sermon that I I, I would say is very different than what you might hear in some of today's so-called Pentecostal churches, if you've uh, ever been in one, I, I admitted last week that um, part of my theological upbringing was um, in a Pentecostal church, and, uh, and yet God graciously, um, uh, I would say I think in some ways, protected me um, as, I, as I came through that movement and, and learned some phenomenal things, good things, 
Um, like I said last week, that I'm a little bit more of a mutt, right? A, uh, how do I refer to myself? A Reformed Baptocostal, I think, is the way that I referred to myself. And so, um, you know, there were an old preacher I used to listen to would say that he was a uh, charismatic or Pentecostal with a seatbelt on. You know, there's all sorts of uh, goofy phrases you can use to uh, kind of define where you're at. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, when I... When I study through Peter's uh, sermon here in Acts chapter 2, it is different than what my experience was in the Pentecostal church. And this is not necessarily just a, a big blast on them, but I think it's a good way to start out. Um, some of the main differences that I notice are this. I have three. Um, Peter's Pentecostal sermon here on the day of Pentecost, he, he actually refutes all of the rumors in his day about believers being drunk early in the morning. He does that instead of inviting people to be drunk in the Spirit. If, I don't know if you've ever seen that kind of crazy phenomenon in, in that movement. But instead of doing that, he refutes drunkenness. The second thing I notice um, is that his sermon exalts the name of Christ all over the place. It's all about Jesus. It exalts the name of, the, of, of Jesus uh, as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, uh, instead of, on the other hand, exalting the Holy Spirit himself or the gifts and the talents that the Holy Spirit might distribute. So th this is what Peter's sermon does as opposed to what you might see or hear today. Um, third thing is um, his sermon here on the day of Pentecost ultimately Ultimately, it calls people to trust in our crucified, risen, and returning Savior for salvation, right? That's ultimately what Peter is doing today. And he's doing that instead of calling people to some, what I would call kind of a weird, euphoric, psychologically manipulative experience while seeing some verse of a theologically incorrect song over and over again. Um, what song comes to my mind? Oh, you're looking at me like, I have no idea what's he even talking about. <laughs> Reckless Love. <laughs> Thank you, all right. I love the song Reckless Love. About everything in that song is great. So you heard me say this, except for the, the word reckless. <laughs> That's the issue. It is not theologically correct at all. Read the book of Psalms, you will not find that. You'll find steadfast love. Um, that's what you'll find. So replace the one word. The cadence is the same. The song is theologically straight. Now you may sing <laughs> if you follow me. Um, so I think those are some of the main differences as I look at the text. When I, when I think about that, and some of the, again, some of the reason that I go here is that uh, there are many churches today who uh, would, would look at this text and, and look at what's happening on the day of Pentecost and would arrive at some different places. I just want to take a look at the text itself and, and see if what I'm um, arriving at is, is right. And I want to invite you guys to do the same with me. Uh, look at verses 14 and 15 with me. The first thing we notice is in those verses. Um, basically what Peter does here is he begins to preach, right? And as he begins to preach, this is like the introduction to his sermon, what he does is he essentially refutes any notion whatsoever that the disciples are actually drunk at nine o'clock in the morning, right? This is not what's taking place, he says. Uh, you might remember previously as we studied last week that the Holy Spirit had showed up in a very miraculous, very 
powerful way, right? It was a sound of rushing wind. There were tons of fire resting on the disciples' heads. And, and then, then they begin to speak in all these unknown languages of the world that were present that day on the day of Pentecost, right? The, the biggest celebration in Israel, the most attended um, every year. The disciples were literally given the power to to witness to the work of our crucified, risen, and returning Savior. And they're doing this in all of the unknown, or all of the known, unknown to them, but known languages throughout uh, that time period to to the ends of the earth. And some people responded very positively. Others, though, responded to what they were seeing in a very negative way. They began to, to mock the disciples. They began to accuse them of early morning drunkenness. And we, we thought a little bit last week, we talked a little bit about what it looks like for believers to be mocked because of others seeing what God is doing in their lives. This is nothing new in the history of God's move among people. So here in verses 14, uh, Peter's introductory remarks, uh, again, he just refutes the accusations uh, that are rolling around. And I also think, okay, you might think about this for a moment, it's not just that he refutes the accusations that are rolling around about believers. There's an even further display of power that is taking place here. And you might remember that Jesus promised the disciples that if they went back to Jerusalem waiting for the Holy Spirit, He would come from on high and He would empower them. The word being dunamis in the Greek or dynamis in the Greek, meaning dynamic or dynamite power, right? You, you want to keep coming back to that because that is what's happening all throughout the book of Acts. It's dynamite power uh, by the Holy Spirit through the disciples. And here, here Peter is powerful. It's powerfully preaching a sermon that explains what exactly is taking place. And he's doing it by showing everyone present that Jesus himself is actually the reason for what is happening. And not only that, but since Jesus is the reason for what is happening, he's basically saying, I want to show you that this is true. And he he doesn't say, I want to show you that this is true by taking you on some manipulative Um, psychological experience, I actually want to show you that this is true by taking you back to God's Word. It's exactly what he does. What he does from this point forward throughout the rest of the text is he takes us on a journey in the Old Testament from the prophet Joel as well as the writings of King David in the Psalms. You can tell that Peter is a transformed man. He went from using his own word and his own sword to try to make something happen, to now just resting on the power and the authority and the inerrancy. These are are big words, right? The perfection, the truth of God's word alone. I will share that as as I moved through my years in the Pentecostal movement, I remember a friend of mine sending me some videos of a man who had a Bible on the stage, and and I thought, oh, he's going to preach, and he didn't. He closed the Bible, and he said, that's not what we're going to do today. The Holy Spirit's leading us to crow like chickens. And that was what he did uh, for the next 30 minutes, and everybody in the audience would get up, and and they would waddle around like chickens. This was what they believed was a move of the Holy Spirit, and it was dishonoring to God's word. Uh, and it blew my mind. Those were some of the things I began to experience in that movement that began to move me away from that 
and I hope back to just good, solid biblical theology um, that still lifts high the name of the Holy Spirit as one part of the Godhead. Um, what you see here is Peter doing exactly what I think we all should do, which is to rest on the sufficiency of God's word alone and not mere experience. Because here's the thing. Experiences can mislead you. Just like emotions can mislead us. Yet God's word would never mislead. God's word would always set straight. So, Peter moves on, right? And he begins to preach the prophet Joel. Verses 16 through 24. And again, I just want to kind of work through this chunk by chunk. But let me give you a broad overview of this section of the text. In verses 16 through 24, Peter literally, kind of word for word, line for line, preaches from the book of the prophet Joel. Um, and he does this to, to, to prove that what everyone was seeing and hearing on that Pentecostal morning is in fact a, a mighty move of the Spirit of God who was sent to exalt the name of Jesus, crucified, risen, and returning. If you look at verses 16 through 18 first, what do we see? Peter explaining that the prophet Joel foresaw this very day. And he foresaw this very day, this day of Pentecost, as a day when the Spirit of God would in fact enable His people, right? He would enable them, both male and female, he says, to do what? To prophesy. You might notice in this section of text that the word prophesy is mentioned twice. One very good friend of mine, um, who is a Pentecostal preacher, he would say to me, when someone gets saved and the Holy Spirit fills them, um, what we see the most is an enabling of a prophetic-like utterance, um, an ability to speak um, the truth of the gospel. I appreciated his um, explanation. So I think it's uh, very biblical when, when you look at this. It, it was the ability to, to, to prophesy. Um, it also says that, that they're given the ability to see visions, to have dreams. And the emphasis here, I think, is on that ability to prophesy, or what I would call to boldly speak the truth regarding Jesus to the ends of the earth, because that's the context. That's what we see taking place. This is exactly what is happening as the disciples speak in those tongues that were unknown to them, but were also very known to the many people gathered from all over the world. I want us to also not forget, as you're looking at this, uh, the power of the Spirit once again being manifested through Peter, right? What had happened 50 days before this is undeniably um, depressing. What is happening now 50 days later is undeniably shocking. 50 days ago, uh, Peter was denying Jesus. And not just denying Jesus, but cursing the name of Christ. Okay, that, that's, a, that's a pretty far place to fall to. I want to remind us that as you're reading this text, as we're studying it, that, there is, there is, that you cannot be too far gone for God to save you and use you immediately. There is, in a sense, a, a, the scriptures speak of a, um, an unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit, right? which is to curse the name of Christ, so to speak. Um, but it is to curse the name of Christ up until the day you die. 
Uh, I would hope that for all of us hearing this message, that that would not be your story, that you would be like the thief on the cross next to Jesus who would have lived your life in opposition to God until the final moments when your heart changed. Yet even if that is your story, it's still glorious because Jesus said to the man on the cross next to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And as another really famous preacher says, whom I really uh, appreciate, um, you imagine that day and when, when that thief on the cross showed up in heaven in the next few moments and he gets to the gate and, uh, and the angel goes, hey, didn't you leave a, live a really rotten life? Yeah, but the guy on the cross next to me said I could come. More do you need to hear? So wherever you've been in your life, look at, look at Peter here and know that God can radically transform you in an instant. Days ago, he was denying Christ, cursing the name of Christ. But what's he doing now? Now he's preaching powerfully, right? And not just powerfully, but he's preaching courageously. You think about the audience that he's standing in front of. More than 3,000 people gathered together, among whom were some of those who were directly responsible for the murder of Jesus. You think about that. You look at verses 19 through 21 as you move your way through the text, and Peter has just explained that, hey, the prophet Joel foresaw this day, the day of Pentecost. The prophet Joel not only foresaw this day, but he also foresaw another day. And this is kind of fascinating when you think about the way Peter is moving his way through, explaining what is taking place. Joel foresaw another day in the future when Jesus is going to return on the day of judgment. Verses 19 through 21, right? And on that day, what does he say? There's only one hope you're going to have on that day. The only hope that you're going to have on that day is whether or not you have received salvation. How do you receive salvation? Peter makes it very clear by calling upon the name of the Lord by faith in the finished work of Jesus. Now, if you move down to verses 22 through 24, right? Peter, as he preaches, Joel has brought us from this point of, hey, this is what Pentecost is about. But by the way, there is a, there is a more important day in the future, the day of judgment, when the king is going to return. That day is very important. You better have called upon the name of Jesus on that day. Now that he's brought his audience to that day of judgment, prophesied by Joel, he turns his attention more specifically to our crucified, risen, and returning Savior. And what does he do? What does he do? Peter courageously confronts those people in his audience who were directly responsible for murdering Jesus. That's crazy. Can somebody else say that's crazy? Okay. I mean, he's standing in the pulpit and he goes, by the way, there's some of you here today and you are responsible for the unlawful, ungodly murder of Jesus. That's a heavy moment. Um, it's a courageous moment. Coming from a coward like Peter who bailed 50 days ago, right? It's now been transformed. He's able to stick his finger out and say, you, you did this. He points out that uh, 
Jesus' life was actually marked by the power of God, according to verse 22, right? He points out that Jesus was murdered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, verse 23, which is a, it's a fantastic head nod, recognition of the sovereignty of God at work in what was taking place. That there was no human who could have changed what took place. And yet at the same time, ungodly men were still responsible and would be held accountable for their actions. Murdered by ungodly, unlawless men is the way he puts it. But the way he ends it in verse 24, it's like, hey, by the way, that Jesus whom you murdered, his grave's empty. His grave's empty. God raised him up from the dead on the third day. Just think about this, okay? You're in the audience, and you know that you're responsible for the ungodly murder, unlawless murder, the, the, the unlawful murder of an innocent man named Jesus. And this Peter is preaching and previously, you were accusing the disciples of being drunk. Like somehow they had sinned. As Peter's preaching, he's just taking you through prophets that you've studied for years. And at some point in the midst of this, as he's talking about this Jesus, whom you know you were at least partly responsible for murdering, he says, yeah, um, you know that God proved who he was with all these powerful works and in case you missed it his tomb is empty he's taken you to judgment day already he's made you think about that as well you know there's a day coming that if you don't call upon the name of the lord judgment day is for you and in those moments he says by the way you could call upon the name of this lord this risen lord that you crucified you were, were responsible for his death the way that you could be saved from his wrath and his fury on the day of judgment is by calling upon his name it's a radical crazy thing to think about normally it would cause a lot of fear i think if i were to think about if i treated somebody in an ungodly way i'm just trying to make this a little more personal right if i treated somebody in an ungodly way and I, I didn't just accidentally kill them but I actually murdered them in a horrific way and somebody goes hey you know God brought that person back to life my thought is oh shoot uh, I can't kill that person what am I going to do you know there's not enough ARs in the world to take care of this guy you know whatever it may look there's some fear that sets in there but then when somebody goes you know um, if you were just to call upon that person for, for mercy and grace and salvation that that, that person is the only one responsible, the only one able to save you from what's coming. That's where we're at in, in Peter's sermon. Pretty certain you could hear a pin drop. That's what I think. I think you can hear a pin drop in these moments as Peter preaches from the prophet Joel and how he uses the prophet Joel in his study of the scriptures to show that Everything that was happening here on this Pentecostal morning was nothing less than the work of Jesus through His very own Spirit. 
as he gives the disciples the power to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the known earth. After this, Peter shifts his attention away from the prophet Joel and he moves into the Psalms. You look at verses 25 through 36, and uh, now that Peter has brought us through Joel, he's brought us to that place, he's brought us right to the foot of the resurrection, right? He's even kind of given us a little bit of uh, foresight into the return of Jesus on that day, the judgment day, the one whom we are responsible for murdering is returning as the crucified, risen Savior. And through him, we could have salvation. Now he moves on to Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, portions of both of those psalms. I encourage you to go back and read those in conjunction with what we're studying today. The, the tentacles of meaning and implication of all of this reaches so far that you could preach for hours on this area of text. And one commentator, as I was studying Friday evening, actually made the joke that you can read this text in about five minutes, but let us not be duped into thinking that this was all Peter said and that he only preached a five-minute sermon and sat down. Let us not be duped into thinking that. Um, as Peter preaches from Psalm 16 and 110, he makes basically the main point basically all over again. Uh, he makes this point that though Jesus was unlawfully murdered by some of the people in his audience, and here, subtext, implication, it's not just those who were directly responsible for those nails, that crown, thorns, that beating, that cross, the spear in the side. It's not just that they were directly responsible. It's that every one of us as sinful human beings are responsible for that death. Though Jesus was unlawfully murdered by some of the people in his audience, that same Jesus, he left the tomb empty, he ascended into heaven, he rules over all creation, not only that, but he's both, and this is great, he's both the king and the savior that David spoke of many years ago. If you were to go back to, I think it was some of our Christmas messages from uh, this last year um, on Melchizedek. Um, we did a lot of work there in um, chasing down this promise from God to David that, that somebody far in the future would sit on that throne. Um, I would encourage you to go back and listen to those messages uh, because we don't have time <laughs> today to recap all of that. But it's, it's, hint, it's not just hinted at here. It's spoken directly too. Verses 25-28, Peter uh, quotes King David from Psalm 16. And, it, and it's Psalm 16, verses 8-11 through 11, for those of you that are taking notes and not sleeping. He makes it clear. He makes it clear that David was speaking in that psalm about how Jesus was not abandoned to the grave. He wasn't left there in the grave. He's not dead. He also points out that, that, that Jesus, his, his, his future resurrected presence with David, actually gives David guidance and gladness. 
as David looks far into the future, he sees a piece of what God has promised him. And he says, I know that there is an eternal king, an eternal Lord who's going to be placed on my throne in the future. And of this I am sure, that eternal king, that resurrected king, gives me guidance and fills me with gladness. I think because David knew there was an implication in that, that for all who would trust and believe in that king, that that's our inheritance. That our inheritance is in fact a resurrected life. You look at verses 29 and 32. Peter continues to move on. He, he explains um, more of his interpretation of Psalm 16. And he uses some really sound logic. Uh, I think there are some who, who don't think that, that logic should be part of faith. Um, I will try to post a link later um, to, to one of my uh, favorite old preachers who, who I say is a favorite old preacher, but I can't remember his name in this moment, so that'll tell you how it'll come to me. Um, Logic on Fire, I think, is the, the name of the, the documentary. Um, this, is, this is how bad it is for me. I don't remember names. So I forget Joe Nelson's name all the time. Catch how ironic that is, right? My name is Joe. Peter uses some really sound logic here as he reminds his audience of what? When, when you look at verses 29 to 32. He's reminding his audience that the David is not speaking about himself in this psalm. The David actually could not be speaking about himself because why? Well, because uh, David's grave is right around the corner and the bones are still in it. Somebody hasn't dug them up and used them as relics at this point, apparently. You know. Those bones are still there. The tomb is full. And they know that. There's no disputing that. It's a fact. Yet, on the other hand, just down the road also is Jesus' grave. And Jesus' grave is not full. Jesus' grave is empty. And not only that, but Jesus had appeared, uh, resurrected to more than 500 believers during that period of 50 days between, or 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. There were more than enough people who saw him, walked with him, ate with him, sat around the fire with him, ate breakfast with him, right? Joked around the campfire with him, I would assume even. In fact, that's Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15. And, and Paul would say that uh, from a logical standpoint, our entire faith hangs on the truth of the resurrection. If it's not true, our faith is worthless. We're only sitting here in a social club this morning if the resurrection is not true. So, it, so I would encourage you, like if you're here and you're struggling your faith, or if you're here and you're not quite yet there in terms of trusting in Jesus, study the resurrection. Study the, the proof and the truths of the resurrection. Maybe God would use that to bring you to that place of being strengthened in your faith or coming to a place of faith. Because it all hinges on the resurrection. And here Peter points to that and says, hey, logically speaking, David's tomb, got a dead body in it. Jesus' tomb, absolutely empty. And most of us here today have witnessed that and so have some of you. Moves on in the 
in the final portion of the text here, verses 33 through 36. And, and he moves on from Psalm 16 here. This is where he makes the shift to Psalm 110. And he's doing it as he's speaking about the resurrected Christ, who, um, according to verse 36, this is a key part of the text, I think. Um, again, there, there's so many things we could have stopped and spent a lot of time on. But according to verse 36, Peter says, again, referencing Psalm 110, that, uh, uh, both, uh, that Jesus himself is both the Lord. Now, this is the Greek word for Yahweh. Uh, hopefully that sends some light bulbs off for some of you. He's not just Lord in terms of lowercase l, like a Lord of a portion of the kingdom. He is the Lord, capital. He's Yahweh. Um, the, the Greek, I think you call it the Greek Septuagint, which is a crazy word for the, the Greek translation of the Bible um, at, during, during that, these periods. Um, long story short, it's the Greek word for Yahweh. Peter proclaims him as God. Well, somebody asks you, well, Jesus, or says to you, Jesus never claimed that he was God. Yes, he did, and his followers did too. And this is, this is one of those key places. But here's the cool thing. He doesn't just say, hey, uh, this resurrected Christ, he is both Yahweh. He also says he is Christ. This is the Greek word for Savior. Um, so one implication here is, Oftentimes, I think, uh, in, in evangelism, um, we want to call people to the love of Christ, right? Or we might blend that with some, boy, you don't want to face judgment. And, and those are both equally important parts of sharing the gospel. But oftentimes, we lean too heavy on the, hey, Jesus wants to save you from hell, wants to save you from the penalty of your sin. True, very true. We can lean too heavily on that at times and just give people a, a sense of a um, get-out-of-hell card, a, a go-to-heaven-free card, which is true. But ultimately, if you only come to Jesus as he who will merely save you, but not also he who is your king and Lord that you might now must now surrender to in obedience, uh, we get a very deficient spiritual life. Uh, because then we begin to treat our Savior as one who uh, only loves us and forgives us in the midst of our sin, which is true. But we negate the fact that there is also an obedience factor now for those of us that are filled with the Spirit and given power to obey and to grow and be transformed. So there is both Savior and King taking place in the text, and that's what Peter is saying. He's not only saying that, he's also saying that this Jesus, both King and Savior, He is the one who received the Holy Spirit. He received the Holy Spirit from the Father. This is the biblical pattern that takes place. The Father gives the Spirit to Jesus, who now pours out the Holy Spirit upon His followers to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And this is the Jesus, remember, whom they had murdered. Now he's resurrected, he has ascended, and he's returning on the day of judgment to deal with his enemies. That's you and I if we don't know Jesus, because prior to being his children, we are his enemies. We're not all God's children, and it may not be a truth you've ever heard. Um, we're all God's creation, but you don't become God's child until you trust in him and he becomes your father. 
up until then, you're his enemy. You and I both, if we live without faith in Christ. At the moment that you become his child, he's now adopted you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what God adopts, he doesn't take back to the adoption home. I do want to say that. That's important. He doesn't get you from the adoption home and go, oh, you know what, Joey? You're just a little too filthy for me. <laughs> I wish you'd quit acting up, quit throwing fits, quit sinning. I'm going to go see where and find a better kid. I'm going to throw you back. I'm going to wipe you off the, 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 the list of my family names. You're going to have to do something to get back on that list again and get resaved. That, that is a heresy. Okay. Um, are there some... <laughs> There are those who believe you can lose your salvation. I'm not saying all of those are heretics. Please don't hear me wrong. Luther would say, though, Luther would say that that teaching is pretty rank heresy. He's pretty straight about it. There are implications of that doctrine that are. Ultimately, the scriptures do not paint the picture of a father who takes his adopted children and puts them back in the adoption home. Of Satan sin in the grave. So this Jesus, who was murdered, who's resurrected, who's ascended, who's returning on the day of judgment to deal with his enemies, that same Jesus, King and Lord, that's whom his audience needs to call upon for salvation before that dreadful day arrives. That's the essence of the text that we've just read. Conclusion, try to apply a little bit for us. Um, I can't imagine being in that audience that day. I really, I, like, I try to imagine that, right? I, I think I've tried to kind of take us there a little bit. I really do think there was some pin drop um, silence and quiet. I think that what Peter is preaching here is very heavy. I mean, there's nothing light and fantastic about it. I mean, it's, it's, it's hopeful. What he's done here, though, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is he has literally preached a Christ-exalting sermon. And he did it from both the prophet Joel as well as the Psalms, right? He, he rested on the power of the Bible, not experiences. And he rested on the power of the Bible to explain an experience as being actually biblical. His main emphasis all along is simply this. The disciples are not drunk in the early hours of the morning, but instead, what has happened here is that they've been given the, the, the dynamite ability to proclaim the crucified, risen, and returning Christ to the nations in fulfillment of the prophecies of Joel and David. What God the Father is doing here is He's literally pouring out His Spirit through His Son so that the gospel could be proclaimed to the ends of the earth beginning in Jerusalem. It'd be popular to say, I think, uh, in some of the circles that I run in, that, that uh, when God doesn't change people or save people through fanatic experiences. And I would say, actually, if you read this text, that's exactly what God does. Is that normative? Is a good question to ask. We won't jump into that today. We will in the course of the study. As you read commentators, though, most of them would focus on the Christ-centeredness of Peter's Pentecostal sermon. And most of them would say that this is the inauguration of the age of the Spirit at work in the true church, the true Spirit-filled church, they would say. Most of those same commentaries would also focus on something else. There is a 
this of the New Testament passage and the rest of the New Testament as well. Uh, that is a fulfillment, or it's based on the that of the Old Testament redemptive history. And, that, and that's all true. Peter's definitely doing exactly this. Definitely preaching the inaugural sermon of the age of the Spirit-filled church. He's definitely explaining that the this of the New Testament is the fulfillment of that from the Old Testament. This is definitely what he's doing. The scriptures are, are, are a unique and wonderfully woven tapestry. All throughout, the, the centers on the person and the work of Jesus. And upon hearing everything here in, in this short part of the sermon, because we, we haven't finished his sermon yet, we're going to come back next week and finish the rest. But just upon hearing this portion of it at this point, here's what Luke tells us in verse 37. He tells us that Peter's listeners were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. And I think that was my question as I studied the text, is does this text, does this sermon, does it cut me to the heart? Even as the guy who stands in the pulpit on Sundays under the lights with people looking back to me or nodding off to sleep, um, I'm still just a man. I have to allow the text to preach to me before I can preach it to anybody else. And you know, the worst part is I don't even get that right <laughs> a lot of the times. And these people that heard this sermon, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter, it says in verse 37, they said to Peter and the rest of the, the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? the best question anyone could ask after hearing Peter's sermon, right? If someone hears this sermon, does not ask, what should I do? Then I, I think that's evidence of a hardened heart that is full of worldly pleasures and deadly sin. And, and I, I would be a coward if I didn't say that. Because I, I wouldn't want any of us there. And Peter's answer, you know, it's interesting, you go back to where we started in the sermon of this is what Peter said versus what we experience in church, some churches today. And Peter's answer, you know, to the what shall we do, he didn't say, well, come on up front, and you're going to get filled with the Holy Spirit and fall down on the floor because I pushed you over. He didn't say, come up here and get filled with the Holy Spirit so you can speak in tongues too. He, he literally does not say that. His answer, as we'll look at next week, is repent. Be baptized as a public confession of your faith in Christ. Receive the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of your salvation. And what happens on that day is 3,000 people surrender to Jesus. 3,000 people baptized publicly as a confession of their faith in Christ. That's a magnificent day. That's the power of the Holy Spirit at work among a Spirit-filled church. So if you're, if you're hearing this message and you, you've not surrendered to Jesus, I've said this, I've implied it a, a bunch, you're no different than the, 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 the lawless men, right, who nailed Jesus to the cross. Those nails, that cross, that broken body, that shed blood, that crown, they were because of you and I. And for each of us, it's our sin, it's our rebellion against God that placed Jesus there. And Jesus went there willingly. He died upon that tree to pay the ransom for your sin and my sin so that by faith you and I might become perfect saints. 
And the only thing that you have to do, if that's where you're at and you're asking that question, what must I do? <coughs> it's simple. Admit your sin. Admit your rebellion. Believe. Believe in Christ's finished work at the cross. Confess your faith in his promises to save you, transform you, and return for you in the future. And not only that, but make you into his witness here on earth. By the way, th that's the easiest way probably to share the gospel message. It's called the ABCs of salvation. Um, it's admit, it's believe, it's confess. Um, one, of the, one of the simplest ways. And probably one of the most non-confrontational ways. Admit, believe, confess. Admit your sin. Believe in Christ. Confess your faith. Now, if you're hearing this message and you are a believer, my, my hope for you was that this message would, would give you a, a renewed sense of awe, a renewed sense of joy in, in the work of Jesus. And my, my prayer is that, that for you, if you're here and you're a believer, that it would renew your hunger for God's Word. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a direct application because you see where Peter went. He went to his Word. He, he didn't go to anything else. He just went back to the Word to explain what's going on. I hope that this would renew your hunger for the Word. Peter's Pentecostal sermon here was preached to a, a, a ton of people who thought they had it together. They were, they were showing up for a religious holiday, okay? That's what they were doing. And they thought they had it together. Some of them even thought they were right to murder Jesus, and they thought that that was a religious thing they should have done. At the end of the day, I think you and I know this. Religion will not save you. None of the activities of religion will save you. Being in church, praying, all this, they will not save you. Being in church, being in community, studying the Bible, praying, those things, that, that's the outflow of a saved life. Those who are saved desire those things because they know, man, I, I grow through this. That's part of the fruit of being saved, is that you would want that and engage that way. Religion will not save you, only Jesus saves. And the best evidence that you've been saved actually is a transformed life, right? One like Peter's, that is exhibiting a radical boldness to share the gospel, just like the disciples. So that's my prayer for us. As we close, is that Peter's sermon would move some of us. Maybe some of us in this room, or somebody who hears this message in the future, would move you to salvation, that you would call on the name of Jesus, that you would admit, believe, and confess. And then it would also move others of us uh, to a renewed hunger and passion for God's Word and for sharing Jesus with everyone around us. I think this is the mark of not only a Pentecostal sermon, but a true Pentecostal, Spirit-filled church. Yeah? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Word. I pray, Father, as we close, that you lead us to the foot of that cross. Remind us once again of our deep and great need for Jesus. Help us to trust, to admit, to believe, and to confess. Lord, we love you. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.